How do you think about your thoughts? Are they in you? Are they part of you? Are you part of them? Would it surprise you to know that your thoughts about your thoughts play an extremely significant role in your mental and emotional health? Today we're talking about cognitive diffusion, a fundamental aspect of mindfulness that involves separating ourselves from our thoughts and learning to not be so threatened by them. It's both simple and profound, and it can truly change the way you relate to your own mind and help you get unstuck from troubling mental patterns. If you want to explore some new ways to think about the ways you think, you'll want to tune in to today's Baggage Check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about the history of the infield fly rule. Okay, let's get started. First, a note of apology. The most recent episode, when it was first posted, had an audio glitch that lasted for the first minute or two of the show. Sadly, the glitch did not involve getting to hear previously undiscovered Led Zeppelin tracks or lost recording of the late, great Bismarck He. It was far more mundane. The listener letter was played twice and overrode my voice. Now, the mistake was caught and fixed right away, accompanied by my having just four symptoms of a panic attack, not meeting the full-fledged criteria. But it's quite possible that if your device downloaded the episode when it first came out, then that old, mistaken version remains. My sincerest apologies. It especially stinks because it's my subscribers who got the version with the error. Normally, we have a patented 14-step system to make sure that that doesn't happen. Nope, that's not the least bit true. It's pretty much just me and Buster the dog. And I was traveling for a conference this past week and did not have the usual checks and balances in place. But the good news is, we learned what went wrong, and we know how to prevent it in the future. So, although we can't ever promise perfection on this show, and of course, we take issue with the actual premise of perfectionism, We are always striving to improve and get better, and that is a promise. So thank you for bearing with us. All right, all right, on to today's show. So for those of you who don't know my background, or who think it just involves a strange fixation with the music of 1987, I am a licensed clinical psychologist who's been practicing for a long time in the realm of anxiety, stress, and depression. I've always had a specific interest in the treatment of anxiety disorders and the ways that thoughts affect your emotions and your behavior. This has seen me spending decades studying cognitive behavioral therapy and, more recently, some of the newer interventions that include mindfulness and, most specifically, the world of ACT, or Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. I have seen ACT help an immense amount of people, People who weren't necessarily helped in the same way by traditional CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, we could do a whole discussion about the similarities and differences between ACT and CBT, and truthfully, I still use a lot of traditional CBT techniques, so I'm not looking to set up a war about those two different branches of psychotherapy today. But what I do want to talk about is the premise of cognitive diffusion. And we're going to talk about seven different facts about it 
that will help you understand it better and will help you put it into practice. So to begin, cognitive diffusion is spelled cognitive D, D-E, fusion. So when we talk about it, we're talking about defusing, as in disconnecting. Fusing means connecting, so we're talking about unconnecting. And when we say cognitive defusion, we're talking about creating some separation between you and your thoughts. Not that you won't be aware of your thoughts, but you won't be glued to them. You won't be fused to them. That's the fundamental premise of cognitive diffusion, separating from your thoughts and becoming an observer of them. Now, there are all kinds of separations that are important for mental health. Separation between your time working and your time not working. Separation between your sleeping and your smartphone. But in this case, we're talking about internally separating two things. The separation between your concept of you and your concept of your thoughts. This is somewhat related to something that we see more specifically with OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, and that is called thought-action fusion. So in that case, with thought-action fusion, what you're fusing or what you're kind of gluing together is your thoughts to your actions. You feel like a thought is equivalent to an action. So for instance, if you have the thought of screaming the F-bomb in the middle of a church service then you feel like that's just as bad as if you'd actually done it. Or if you have the thought of hurting someone, it feels just as dangerous as if you actually did it. Naturally, this is another thing that we need to defuse, your actions from your thoughts. Your thoughts do not automatically equate to actions. They don't have to. That's the beauty of the pause. And in OCD treatment, part of the protocol is being exposed to that intrusive thought and starting to learn how it doesn't automatically have to lead toward action. Whether that action is a compulsive ritual to try to rid yourself of the thought, or if that action is acting on the thought itself. Like with my example about the F-bomb in church. Anyway, I just wanted to introduce the idea that this separation, this defusion, has different forms. And today we're going to be talking more broadly about cognitive diffusion. So if you're ready, I've got seven things here that are ways that we can learn about it. You know I like my little numerical lists. So number one, you are not your thoughts. Thoughts don't define you. This is the most basic premise of cognitive diffusion. Your thoughts aren't you and your thoughts don't define you. Some thoughts are random or arbitrary. Some thoughts are just neurons getting their jollies out. Certain thoughts don't represent you any more than that 4 a.m. dream you had about your fourth grade teacher becoming a mud wrestler. This seems so simple, but a lot of people struggle with it. They've spent a lifetime being defined by their thoughts, but I'd really urge you to challenge this idea that your thoughts define you. Your thoughts don't automatically mean anything about who you are. Yes, patterns of thoughts can tell us something or can need to be worked on or can give us a glimpse into some of your habits, but any given thought, it's not you and it doesn't need to define you. A person who has been sober for 20 years doesn't become any less sober because they imagine what it would be like to have a beer. That's not a relapse. It's the action that matters. A person who has an unkind thought can still be a very kind person through their actions. 
You are a different entity than your thought processes, and we will revisit this idea over and over again. Number two, you can learn to observe your thoughts non-judgmentally, with curiosity and with gentleness. When we separate from our thoughts, that doesn't mean that we ignore them or avoid them or run from them or try to numb them. On the contrary, separating from our thoughts means that we notice them in a non-reactionary way. We observe our thoughts. And what kind of observers do we want to be? Well, if you went to a therapist to help you sort out your inner mind, what kind of therapist would be most helpful? One who screams when you tell them what you're thinking? One who interrupts or checks a box on their notepad that says, yep, this person's a jerk? No. The most helpful therapist wouldn't be reactionary. They would be curious and gentle. They would be an observer who helps make sense of things, not a judger who leaps to conclusions or flies off the handle. When observing your own thoughts, this is the same path to take. Be gentle with yourself. Notice your thoughts with curiosity, not with shame. That non-judgmental part might be really, really difficult for you, especially if you have patterns of thoughts that you are used to hating. You hate your social anxiety or your cynicism or your health worries or your pessimism. So when those thoughts crop up, you cringe. You might even hate yourself for having them. It takes work to practice noticing your thoughts in a curious way and not being threatened by them. But that cringe or that shame or that threat just adds distress. It's like those algebra level feelings we always talk about. Fear about fear, anxiety about anxiety, feeling sad about feeling sad, feeling frustrated about feeling frustrated. Feelings with exponents, as I like to say, like a math problem. It can truly make a difference in your life when you let go of the judgment about your thoughts, just like when you let go of the judgment about your emotions. But we're not talking directly about emotions today, I know, so let me not get ahead of myself. Bottom line with this one, you can learn to become a curious, gentle, non-judgmental observer of your thoughts, and it matters a lot. We'll see more on this in a bit. Number three. Thoughts can pass on their own, and they don't have to stick. We don't have to become enveloped in our thoughts or carried along for the ride. Nor do we have to invite our thoughts to stay with us. Thoughts do pass. They may feel like they'll never go away, but they do have the capacity to pass on their own. Now, many, many people get caught in a cycle of rumination, repetitive negative thoughts where the thoughts form this obsessive, nagging engine chugging along, like an itch in the brain that won't go away. That can happen. But do you know the way out of that? It's practicing cognitive diffusion, learning to become less threatened by your thoughts. We are learning all the time that depression and anxiety, they're not caused by negative thoughts per se. They're caused by negative thoughts becoming sticky. It's the stickiness of the thoughts that causes the problems. That's the whole nature of detox your thoughts. It's not that we're banishing negative thoughts. It's that we're detoxifying them by taking away their power. Cognitive diffusion is a way to get your negative thoughts to be less sticky. And when they're less sticky, you're not as bothered by them. Why? Because you're non-judgmental about them. You recognize that your thoughts are not you. You're not reacting in a dysfunctional way because of them. 
You're not carrying around shame and hopelessness about the fact that you have these thoughts. See, it's all coming together, that non-judgmentalness and how it helps keep the thoughts from sticking. Which brings us to number four. Thoughts don't fundamentally have any more power than we choose to give to them. Who decides what power a thought has? We do. Now, this is not to be confused with the classic think positive, where we say, hey, just ignore all your negative thoughts and banish them from your head. In fact, this is the fundamental opposite of that. So bear with me here. Because when we say negative thoughts are awful, they're bad, they're to be avoided, be gone, negative thoughts, we're actually saying that negative thoughts should scare us, that they're big and important, that they have meaning and power. See the trouble there? In truth, thoughts don't have to have any meaning or power whatsoever. Thoughts can just be annoying mental hecklers. Maybe some we wish weren't there for sure, but they'll pass most quickly if we don't engage with them in such a way that tells them that they're big and strong. Your parents probably told you in second grade that when you give a bully attention, now you've made it a thing and they'll keep after you. Negative thoughts aren't that different. When we try to fight them so hard to get them to stop, we exhaust ourselves and we keep them coming back. And in doing so, we tell ourselves that these negative thoughts are a threat. Take the stand-up comedian. If they've got a heckler in their audience, what do the pros do? Do they nervously ignore them and do everything in their power to deny that they're there as the heckler gets louder and louder and louder and they lose command of the room? Do they fight them and derail their whole act into a screaming match where they now make it all about the heckler, making the entire audience want to crawl into a hole? Or do they confidently and nonchalantly acknowledge the heckler's obnoxiousness with a swift, frank assessment, some basic joke that puts the heckler in their place and dismisses them and shows that they're not a threat, and then they move on with their act? That's the way to go. Once again, it's not about fighting with our thoughts or running from them. Both of those things give the negative thoughts way too much power. Number five, thoughts alone can't hurt us. This is really hard for some people to fathom, especially if they grew up in an environment where there was a lot of shame or a lot of rigid ideas about what thoughts were acceptable and what were unacceptable. Some people are caught up in the idea of impure thoughts, that the thought alone is a sin. Some religious traditions go all in on this, but I really take issue with it. There is only one place on earth where what goes on in the privacy of your own head is actually punishable, and that is if you are counting cards at the blackjack tables in Vegas. Isn't that interesting, by the way? A casino can kick you out for something that essentially is just going on in your own mind. But of course, if you're counting cards effectively and you're adjusting your bets accordingly, you can get a slight edge on the casino, which is an absolute no can do. So if they suspect you're doing that, then you're out. And yes, this has been top of mind because the conference that I've been at that took away my audio glitch detecting abilities from that previous show, it was in Las Vegas. It was the Consumer Electronics Show. And yes, if you're wondering why a woman who can't really even turn on her own television without help would be at the Consumer Electronics Show, I don't blame you. I was speaking as part of an excellent digital health panel talking about the future of medical diagnostics. But back to counting cards. 
not literally. I don't want Caesar's Palace putting me on some list. Back to the idea that other than counting cards in a casino, what goes on inside your own head is yours alone. And it cannot get you punished or automatically hurt you. Yes, certain thoughts are very, very painful because of what they represent. I get it. Certain memories are traumatic. I understand. But what we're talking about when we talk about the principles of cognitive diffusion is that the mere presence of a thought does not automatically have to lead to punishment or danger or judgment. Thoughts alone do not do that. It's what happens from the thoughts, the action that we convince ourselves to do, or the impulse that we can't bring ourselves to pause from, or the emotion that has been conditioned to happen from the thought, that is where the struggle can come. And when we have patterns of thoughts that are causing us pain, we can learn to neutralize those thoughts over time. And guess what? You will probably not be surprised to know that cognitive diffusion, that it's part of that process. Number six, thoughts can always be labeled as such. This gets into our awareness of the process of thinking, something called metacognition which is basically our thoughts about our thoughts, our insight into our mental processes, our awareness of our cognitions. Is there a name for thinking about thinking about our thoughts? Or thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking about our thoughts? Maybe meta-meta-meta-cognition? Regardless, the more we can notice and be aware of our thought processes, the less threatening they are. So this is one of my favorite first steps of cognitive diffusion, labeling your thoughts as thoughts. If it's a first step, why is she putting it at number six? Well, I wanted to warm you up a bit. But just imagine any thought you have and try to practice labeling it as a thought. Whether the thought is true or not, right now, that doesn't matter for this. It's just the process of recognizing it as a thought. I'm having the thought that I'm going to do poorly on this presentation. I'm having the thought that Sarah doesn't like me anymore because of that comment I made. I'm having the thought that I'm going to get fired. I'm having the thought that I have some awful disease. I'm having the thought that my partner is falling out of love with me. Labeling the thought as a thought helps the process of getting distance. It helps you become that observer. You can go a step further with the self-distancing, as we call it, and you can actually talk in the third person. And really, there's nothing to be embarrassed of here. It helps. Andrea's having the thought that people think she's an absolute buffoon when it comes to that mistake that's still nagging at her. Seriously, try it in your own voice. It might sound completely hokey, but over time, it helps you practice cognitive diffusion. And finally, number seven. Thoughts don't always have to lead to action. We get to choose what we do with them. We've alluded to this before, and this is key for anyone who struggles with self-destructive behavior or emotion management or substance abuse or binge eating or impulse control disorders. Just like I mentioned before, somebody does not become less sober because they have the thought of drinking a beer. It's the pause between thought and action where the magic happens. That mindful pause, noticing your thoughts and not being thrown by them. 
not going automatically into some action just out of habit or impulse. This ties into the concept of urge surfing. I love urge surfing. This is the idea that you can notice an impulse or a craving or an urge and ride it like a surfer. It's a wave and the wave will come and the wave will go and you can notice it and stay on top of it. You don't have to fear it. You don't have to assume it will put you under. I grew up in a beach town and the concept of riptides was one that loomed large throughout my childhood. Rip currents, I think, is more the proper name for them. Those frightening, invisible channels of water that are under the surface of the bigger body of water. These currents, they move fast and they move away from the coast. So in theory, they can pull you out away from shore without warning. Naturally, the idea of getting stuck in a rip current is incredibly frightening. But the advice for how to deal with it is sometimes counter to what people's natural instincts are. Because if somebody feels themselves being pulled away from the shore, the automatic urge is often to fight the current with all their might, to try to swim back to shore. What does that do? That exhausts them. And this is where the danger is. The danger is not in the rip current itself. The danger is in fighting the rip current because that's what weakens you. Rip currents actually don't pull you underwater. You get pulled underwater when you can no longer have the strength to stay above water because you've been fighting with the rip current. Rip currents can pull you away from shore, and that's very frightening. But it's not as dangerous as trying to fight it. The way out of a rip current is not to fight it. The way out is to conserve your energy and to swim out of it by swimming parallel to the shore or diagonal to the shore, but not swimming directly against it, which exhausts you. All right, I know you're saying, get out of this metaphor, (laughs) but this is important. Negative thoughts don't have to take us under. Urges and mental itches don't have to lead to certain actions. We can pause and notice the urges. We can observe them. We can float on top of them, and they will pass. It's when we fight with them that they exhaust us and pull us under. When we say, oh my God, oh my God, why am I having that thought? What's wrong with me? Oh my God, there's something wrong with me. I'm a disaster. Or, hey, I'm trying to stop binge eating, but I'm having the urge to binge eat. I'm a failure. I might as well go and do it anyway. The judgment and the reaction leads to that shame and it leads to that urge being overpowering. So remember, we always get to choose our actions. Any given thought does not have to lead to any given action. And when it comes to the bigger picture of cognitive diffusion, this much is key. We can separate from our thoughts. We can observe our thoughts curiously and gently and non-judgmentally. And in doing so, we can neutralize and disempower some of our toughest, most negative thoughts. So this was just a little bit of an introduction. The theme of cognitive diffusion and mindfulness and, of course, detoxing your thoughts is one that runs throughout my work. So we'll revisit this again and again in different ways, hopefully with some better metaphors. But for now, why don't you try labeling your thoughts a little bit? Andrea's having the thought that if you do, it might just be helpful. Thank you for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast 
to give your take on upcoming topics and guests. And why not tell your chatty coworker where to find us? Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Danielle Merity, and my studio security is provided by Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care.